Hi Bella. Hi Irina. Welcome back to Moments That Define Us. Welcome back to Moments That Define Us. I just wanted to catch up a little bit um, because people care deeply about our lives and yes. what we do, right? So people care de- very deeply. Like a famous, <laughs> famous, <laughs> famous people. Yes. So what has been, catch me up. What has been happening with you? I, so I'm crazy cat lady and I work, well, I volunteer at a cat shelter and I decided I wanted to foster. So now we have three kittens that are five weeks old in our apartment. Yes. But anyways, what's new in your life? What's new in my life? Well, so I did get a car because I have eight people living in my house And so I needed a big car to fit everybody. Yes, eight people in my car. I mean, because they don't live in the car. They live in the house. (laughs) Imagine that. It's like you sleep in the car now. Now they, they, everybody sleep. No, but she's incredible because with everything going on in Ukraine, she's opened her home and had her parents come over and now her brother and... Well, yeah, you know, they are my family, so I have to take them in. Um, But you know what? Everything's going to work out. I'm glad that they're safe here and they're with me. And uh, that's all that matters. Today is my dad's birthday. So a shout out to Jay Magidson. He's going to be in an upcoming episode. He is fabulous. Well, he's not just fabulous, but he is kind and smart and one of the most intelligent people I know, and I'm not just saying that because he's my dad. He is, and I can second that. And also, I would like to thank Jay for instilling sarcasm in me because, you know what, he did it so well that I can play, that I can be sarcastic to him, which I've done once, which he, I burn him. Is that what it's called, burn? Mm Mm-hmm. Because remember, I play sarcasm on him, which I was joking. I was being very sarcastic. He took it very seriously. And um, she finally got him. I finally got him, which makes me very happy. But yes, Jay, um, Jay is like my, my second dad. And I love having conversation with him. He's very smart and he's very positive human being. Um, so... Happy birthday, Jay. Happy birthday, Dad. Have a um have a good piece of cake. And hopefully, well, it's today. You're gonna be hearing this in a week. So hopefully you had a good piece of cake. And now let's get back to our episode. We just finished recording a conversation about mental health with Eric Jacobson, who works in a nonprofit called Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners. It's, as Eric put, we just scratched the surface with with what we talk about, with where we are with mental health and all the resources and everything. We got into so many amazing things and we are going to have Eric back. So please enjoy the episode on mental health with Go Eric Jacobson. Enjoy. I'm cutting Irene off because it's so juicy that we just have to jump right in. Okay, have fun. So welcome, Eric, to our podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So should we start off with what exactly is the name of the role that you do in the Colorado 
Rocky Mountain Crisis Partner. Yes. So I am a crisis specialist. And so that role is the frontline call taker for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and also the Colorado Crisis Line. So those are the two main crisis hotlines that we answer on behalf of the state of Colorado. That is really cool. Is that something that everyone has access to in Colorado? Yes. Yeah. So it's a 24-7, 365 number designed to be there for anybody and everybody in a time where they might need to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. They are perhaps in crisis. And we believe that crisis is self-defined. And so there's no wrong reason to access our services. And we will meet you where you're at, try to help you identify what's going on, how we can be of support, maybe connect you with resources. But for a lot of our callers, it's just a voice on the other end of the line, just somebody to talk to. And I like how you said that crisis is self-defined, right? Because a lot of the times, even for me, when you said crisis, right, it's to me, it's more like crisis, like I am almost at the end of the line, right? Meaning like somebody's suicidal and but it's 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 not that right so anybody who's just having hard time is that i'm understanding right can call you and just talk to either you or other crisis specialist on the line correct exactly so 10 years ago i didn't even know what a crisis hotline was um i had vaguely heard of a, a suicide prevention line but i really had no idea And I kind of meandered my way into this field. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions in our community about what it is, what goes on in these calls. And you're exactly right. You know, anybody can outreach our number. You don't have to be contemplating suicide. If you just want someone to talk to, that's what we're there for. And and I think that for a lot of our callers, you know, I think loneliness is a, a huge issue in our society right now. Mm-hmm. And certainly a line like ours isn't the solution, but we are a voice on the other end of the line where we can provide, you know, human connection to anybody as long as they have access to a, a telephone. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, certainly there are people that call us that are at the end of the line and mm-hmm. we're so grateful that we are there in that pivotal moment. But we would much rather, you know, speak with people at a time in their life where maybe they're just having a bad morning or they're feeling lonely or they're feeling sad. We'd much rather engage with that person in that state versus letting things bottle up and snowball and, you know, perhaps get to the point where that person does contemplate suicide. So we're trying to advertise our services so that we can get out in front of a lot of these things. And you spoke about loneliness. You said that we struggle with loneliness right now. Why do you think that is? I believe this was an issue before COVID. Okay. And I also uh, think that COVID exacerbated these challenges. You know, you can live in a big city with hundreds of thousands of people right around you, and you can be lonely. And I think that with technology and social media, we've made it very easy to kind of live in your own little bubble where you have access to your buttons and your day-to-day routines, but perhaps you go through the entire day and you don't actually look another human being in the eye. Mm. You don't get the opportunity to see someone smile. You don't have a meaningful conversation. 
And so you stack days like that on top of each other. And before you know it, you're alone. You're alone in a world where there's people all around you. And so that's a big problem. And I think that there's, you know, many different ways that we can approach a problem like that. But, and I'm not saying a crisis line is a solution to that problem. But, but it is a resource, right? It is one of many resources that people can, can access. Exactly. And um, I wanted to go back a little bit to the beginning and kind of get your story, right? How you got into this. So I know you are from Boston. I'm going to ask you at some point to say something in that accent because I'm not an American and that's like oh, a very famous it. accent. But how did you, like, how did where you... Where did it start? Where did it start for you? So you're right. I am from Boston. <laughs> Thank you. And I can pack the car and have it yad. Ah, <laughs> uh, we can just end right here. No, I'm kidding. So it did start in Boston. I grew up there. Um, I went to school in Maine and I was pre-med. I was thinking that, oh, you know, I want to go into medicine. What a meaningful career. And and that's, you know, what some of my family members had had done. And so After graduation in college, I made the very, looking back, very wise decision of, of trying out the field, of trying to get some frontline experience and really see what's going on. So I, I got an EMT license, and then I became a medical assistant, and I worked in an urgent care. And so we would see patients from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., 20-minute visits, sinus infections, you know, broken ankles, the whole gauntlet of different issues. And after working there for a couple of years, I started to notice that we would get a lot of visitors to the urgent care that seemed as though they just wanted someone to talk to. They just wanted someone to care for them. And in that 20 minutes, they got attention from the medical assistant, from the nurse, from the doctor. They really got taken care of well, and, and we really valued customer service. And so I started to notice this, and it got me thinking, you know, I think a lot of people are just lonely, and they just want someone to engage with them. So from there, I took my little experiment, and I took a job in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, because I really wanted to see what mental health was all about. What, it, what is it like on the, the real front lines? And that was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life, to mm -hmm. be in an inpatient psychiatric hospital in Boston. It was a lockdown unit. We had 17 patients on the floor. There were two nurses. They were oftentimes behind locked barriers. And then there were two mental health workers, and that's what my role was. That's amazing. And just from like my point of view, and I think a lot of people's point of view, when you say inpatient, I think a lot of people think like crazy people, like, oh my gosh. And I think there's such a stigma behind that. Is there, you know, ways you can talk about how that's probably not what it was at all, right? So when I think of crazy person, I think of myself. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so these were individuals with um, experiencing mental illnesses. Mm-hmm and generally of the more acute form. And so when you take 17 people that are experiencing that and you, you put them in a somewhat confined lockdown unit, things can get pretty intense. Um, and so 
a lot of the role of the mental health worker was what they call maintain the milieu or kind of maintain a, a therapeutic environment. But that was really challenging when you had so many people that didn't know each other, mm-hmm. that were navigating their own personal challenges, oftentimes, you know, without medication, without support. And you throw all those people into a confined space, it leads to very intense interactions. And so as a worker, uh, it was very eye-opening to me about mental health care, the mental health care system, and how how does it get to this as a society where we are so under-resourced to care for these individuals and making fourteen twenty-five an hour, I was tasked with trying to help 17 people get better. It, it made no sense to me. It was upsetting. Um, and I, I tried really hard, you know, in my eight hour shift to try to impact other people. But I started to realize I am so overmatched here. And, and what the heck is going on? It's so frustrating. I have a lot of friends in the healthcare industry, and I feel like it's the same. A lot of these people are amazing humans, and they want to help other people get better, but they're so underfunded and under-resourced. And my friend, she worked in a hospice, and she was like, I had to take care of 25 people, and I'm in college. I'm not. She was a CNA, and I was like, why don't, why don't they hire more people or pay you guys more? I don't know. So Eric, why do you think that is? Why do you think that it is so underfunded and also like undervalued? I mean, there's undervalued, people out there, yeah. You know, you're busting your butt and you're getting paid below minimum wage. It's a great question and it's why I I work in this field and I'm motivated to try to make a difference because it's such a issue. It, it was sad to witness, and it's still a problem. And this hospital that I worked for, eventually what was one of the motivating factors for me leaving was it was a private for-profit hospital. And any every time that one of the beds was filled, we got compensated by Medicaid for X amount of dollars, and it was a significant amount. And I came in one Saturday night for a night shift, And we had a couple empty beds. And I said, oh, great. You know, so-and-so went home. They're getting better. This is good. And one of the nurses there who had a a more administrative role was like, no, this is not good. Like, we need to make sure all the beds are filled all the time. Hmm. That's how we make money. And I thought to myself, how we make money? I'm making $14.25 an hour. I can't even get a Chipotle burrito bowl with that these days. And so it got me thinking, you know, what is what are we doing here? What's the goal? What's the end game? And it made me realize that at this particular institution, we weren't always trying to get people better. We weren't trying to get them out the door. We we're actually trying to keep them there in some weird way. And that was the breaking point for me personally that, you know, eventually had me leave that situation and, and move, move into a different space. And at the time, I was working at this hospital in part of my little personal experiment of trying to determine what is one of the major causes of human suffering. I realized that a lot of people were at the psychiatric hospital because they didn't have anyone in their life that listened to them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at the urgent care and I realize 
a lot of people are coming into the urgent care because they're lonely. I'm at the psychiatric hospital. I realize a lot of people are there because they don't have somebody that listens to them. There, there was a question here that was going unanswered. And so I got on Google and I searched suicide hotline. And this organization called Samaritans came up because they answer the National Suicide Prevention Line for Massachusetts. And I was scrolling through the website and, you know, said help now. You know, I clicked on it and, you know, you could call the number or, you know, get involved. I clicked on that and, and then I got on the website where, you know, you could volunteer. And I sent someone the email and, you know, ended up filling out an application to become a, a volunteer. And so at that point, I got trained there and I started volunteering on the suicide prevention hotline. And that's where I realized where the gold was. That's where you, that was, that was your, would you say that was your defining moment of how, Ooh. of how you actually can help people? It was because I, I was a medical assistant and was taking blood pressure and trying to have really positive interactions with patients. And, and I think I did, but I, I never saw people really, um, I never saw the direct impacts of my interactions. You know, they would come in and they would leave and I hoped they'd get better. And then oftentimes I'd never see them again. And at the psychiatric hospital, similarly, I would pour my heart and soul into that, those eight hours and, you know, leave kind of covered in, you know, bodily fluids and maybe bruised and, and I would go home and I'd say, you know, I think I'm making a difference, but I really don't know. And I hope that those people get better. And I had to really re rely on kind of my self-belief and what I was doing was good. Mm. And when I got on the suicide prevention hotline, those interactions are just <laughs> so incredible. And Oftentimes you do get feedback from the person you're talking with about the impact that you had just by speaking with them for 10 minutes. You know, they'll say something at the end like, you know, hey, I was really thinking about ending my life and you picked up the phone and we talked and I'm feeling better. I think I'm going to go take a shower and then I'm going to, you know, call my friend and on we go. And they'll say something like, if you didn't pick up the phone, you know, I don't know if I would be here. And it's just something, something small like that that just fills your face with, with a smile and, and with a glow. And so I, I started to have those interactions on the line. And, and that's where I realized, you know, this is a really meaningful space to be in if you want to make a difference and know you're making a difference. Do you have people or back then and now that would call back again and, and talk to you more? Would you have the same people call back? We do. Um, and, and when I was in Boston, um, we called them frequent callers. Mm -hmm. um, out here in Colorado, we call them familiar voices. Um, I like that term better. I did too. Um, I was going to just say. <laughs> so we have what we call familiar voices that call us back. And, and oftentimes these are individuals that part of their treatment plan or part of their care, their self-care is outreaching a line like this. And so we have people that call us every single day as part of their routine, you know, maybe in the morning when they're feeling particularly anxious. Just having a 15-minute conversation with somebody is the catalyst they need to proceed with their day. And so to go back to kind of what we do on the line, we do a lot of things. 
you know, for those individuals, we are kind of a stabilizing voice that allows them to to go about their day and, and contribute to the world. And so that's what we're here for. And, and that's what you can get in these little 10 to 15 minute interactions. You know, I call them gold, but you know, you can so positively impact another individual that will then go out into the community and hopefully positively impact another individual. And that's what we call the ripple effect. The ripple effect. It's amazing because sometimes we think, you know, that, oh, it's just this little short period of time. What what do I as one person can do? But sometimes I think even going out and smiling at another person, right, can make this huge difference. So it's it's amazing to know that there are these this resources out there for, for basically anybody who just needs somebody somebody to talk to. I do want to go back a little bit, and it's just what you said about, you know, when you were working at the psychiatric, psychiatric, psychiatric hospital, and when you came and you were, you, this positive person comes in like, oh, this and this person is not here. They went home, they're feeling better. And the other person is like, no, we need to have this because that's how we make money. And it's just, it's so frustrating to see how, you know, this big corporation, all they care about is money, you know, how, and they don't care about the people. They say they do. They don't care about the people is how can we make profit out of people that just, it's frustrating. Yeah. It's frustrating. Um, okay. So when and why did you decide to move to Colorado? So this was October four years ago. So around this time, oh, wow, Ooh, four years ago, um, there were a couple kind of personal things that happened in my life. One of my best friends who lived here in Colorado and I, who I had visited a se- several times and we had hiked and I had just gotten exposed to the beauty of this place. And I was talking to him on the phone and he said that his roommate very abruptly was going to be moving out and that he was now looking for a roommate. And I remember exactly where I was when we were having this conversation. I was just out on this big grass field. I was doing some exercises and I just like looked up into the sky and I thought, this is my, this is it. This is my opportunity. Another defining moment, huh? Yes. This was a (laughs) defining moment in my life where Mm. I said, you know what? I'm coming. And got my little plan in place. I ended my jobs here or there in Boston and packed up my 2007 Toyota Camry, which I had purchased off my late grandmother for 5,000 bucks, one of the best investments I've ever made. Had about 60,000 miles on it when I bought it. Wow. And I still, I drove that here today. That's amazing. It's got 140,000 miles on it now. Thank you, grandma, right? What year is it? 2007. So it's, as I have found out, that was one of the first year that the tire pressure monitoring lights came into existence because mine is blinking now and I brought it to the shop and they're like, yeah, it's going to be really expensive to fix it. It's probably not worth it. So now it just blinks all the time and that's part of the <laughs> fingerprint of my car and it's it's part of who I am. That's really fun. My tire light is constantly on too and I have a Toyota and it's 2006. Maybe that's their signature. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe that's the light for both of you that it's time to get new cars. Anyway, <laughs> never. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so you're in the field, got this defining moment moving, got your grandma's Toyota. How did you end up in Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners? So I set my compass due west, hopped in that car, packed everything I owned in it, which wasn't much, and just started driving. The check engine light comes on in Iowa. And I said, uh, well, it was my first time in Iowa. Great people, very friendly. But I said, I can't stop here. This isn't my destination. So I kept driving all the way with that check engine light on and finally arrived at you know Denver and 1880 South Sherman Street and moved in with Mike. And I didn't have a job. Okay. And rent was due. And I had a, a little bit of savings. So I had a, a couple months rent. So I had a, a window of time here where I needed to get a job. And I knew I wanted to do something meaningful and, you know, that contributed to the community. And so I started applying for different types of nonprofit jobs. And my rule was no furniture until I get a job. So I slept on an air mattress for three months (laughs) until it popped in the middle of the night. And I tried to plug the leak with a piece of gum, which lasted me about an hour. And then I woke up finally after a really fitful night's sleep, wrapped in this air mattress like I was like a soft taco. <laughs> At that point, I oh, just had horrible. it, and I drove to Sleepy's to buy a mattress. And it was snowing at the time, and there was about two inches of snow on the ground. And I show up, and there's a sign on the door that says, we're closed due to inclement weather. This was another defining moment where I realized that Colorado, their tolerance for snow is a little bit lower than what I was used to in the rugged Northeast, where we would still go to work and life goes on when you got feet of snow on the ground. But out here, you get one inch of ground on the ground and, you know, there's society shuts down. Yeah, that's really funny because I feel like it's the opposite. I think of people in like Texas when it snows and I'm like, oh, they're such weenies. We all have to look down upon someone. We, yeah, that's what I was going to say. We always do like, oh, you know, there. Okay, I remember a friend of mine used to live in Atlanta and she used to live here before and she was like, oh my gosh, you cannot believe like it snowed like a little bit and people are freaking out here. She's like, I lived in Colorado, so I just, nobody knows how to drive. So it's funny how, yeah, we always look upon somebody. I love it. Okay, so anyway, so they were closed. Did you just... So how was that your defining you moment? <laughs> well... It was a defining moment in my sleep hygiene where I realized that I, I, I needed a bed if I wanted a good, deep, deep, restorative night's sleep. So I drove home, and I think I ended up going back the next day, and I think I slept on Mike's couch for a couple nights there in the interim. But finally, I got a really nice bed with a nice mattress, of which I still have. Ooh. So that was a defining moment in my personal health. But around that time, I got connected with Rocky Mountain Crisis Partners which is a nonprofit here in Colorado that answers the Colorado crisis line, which is a state-specific 10-digit hotline, and then the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which at the time was a 10-digit number as well. So I applied for the frontline crisis specialist position, and um, I didn't hear back. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, I've, I've really relevant work experience here. I was doing this exact thing in Boston for free, can't even get an interview. So I puttered along there, spent more, you know, Tuesdays and Wednesdays just out hiking, trying to stay busy. And then I applied again and I really followed up with a couple emails. And at that point they're like, oh yeah, we got a hiring class. 
you know, we'd love to have you in for an interview. And, you know, that was another defining moment. I got my chance. So I came flying into the office with the best outfit I had and a little twinkle in my eye. And I walked in and I did the interview and, and I got the position. So I started around the holidays and of 2019, right? 2019. Around the holidays. So you came in right before COVID, right at the very, feel like pivotal moment in the world. I look back at that time and it was just so crazy for me personally, for the world. So it's the holidays. I get trained, you know, I'm, I'm on the lines. I start taking my first calls in early January and it's business as usual. I'm you know, meeting the team and I'm going into the call center and, you know, things are starting to settle down. And then, you know, February rolls all around and you start to hear these rumors about, you know, this and that. And my brother's sending me videos from, are you seeing what's going on in Italy? And, you know, I'm getting my first paychecks here and I'm going right to Whole Foods and I'm, you know, spending pretty much the whole paycheck. And As you do in Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah. So... Life finally feels kind of somewhat stable. And then, then March rolls around and, you know, this thing is becoming real. And, you know, at this point, people are starting to, you know, get, get all the, the Lysol wipes and the, the toilet paper. And I'm still going into the office because, you know, I, th I think there was a time there where we're all just kind of trying to reconcile what's happening. So I remember a really defining, there's another defining moment. I go into the office and a lot of places had already shut down, but we're, you know, we're an essential service. And so, you know, I'm still going in and the person who was a, a couple of cubicles down from me was really coughing. Oh no. And they said, you know, don't worry, don't worry. It's not COVID. And I'm thinking in my head, like, are you sure? Like... At this point, I was bringing my own Lysol wipes because we had run out at the office. There was just a total had, shortage. There was a shortage of everything. So I was wiping down my own stuff, and it was just a, a crazy time. And people were calling, of course, being you know looking to you as some sort of authority or comforting voice about the chaos that is going on in society. And I'm I'm right there with them, being like, you know, yeah, I I don't know what's going on, like. Ugh, it was just it was just pure anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so people at the office at this point, we started to realize kind of what was happening. And they they came to me and they're like, Eric, we want you to go home and test this equipment and see if you can try taking calls from from your house. So it was a Friday. I went home with a backpack full of, you know, it looked like a Radio Shack clearance aisle. I had, you know, cords and wires and headsets and took me about five hours at home to try to figure this out with the VPN and secure and HIPAA compliance bases. And, and then I took a call and it actually went totally fine. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, we as a, an organization, that was a defining moment for our organization because we figured out that this work can be done remotely. And a, a lot of our team then, you know, became remote. And as of today, a majority of our call takers work remotely. You know, before before we started recording, I told you how, you know, how we used to be so, you know, everything online, Zoom, so how nice it is to be in person. But I think for the type of work you are doing, right, to where you still can perform your work at a, you know, 
at a, the best capacity you can, but you do it remotely via phone. It's amazing. That's, I, I can get behind that. How did the calls change for you during COVID? Were they different than, than what you were doing in Massachusetts? It's interesting because when you answer a crisis line, you start to notice trends before they become trends. And as soon as lockdown happened, the calls we were getting on the line, there was an uptick in domestic violence-related concerns. And this was like a week into lockdown. You know, everyone's at home or in their place of residence with people that perhaps they weren't interacting with as much. And you just turn the temperature up on situations like that and it creates friction. You know, you think of across a population, there's going to be a lot of problems. So I, we started to notice the domestic violence like right away. And, you know, in retrospect, as we know, you know, lockdowns had a, a horrible um, influence on things of that nature. And so, you know, we started to just hear about things before they became, you know, in the news cycle. And, you know, certainly some of the most memorable interactions on the crisis line I had related to COVID were the young people. So kids calling from their bedroom. Oh my gosh. You know, I haven't seen my friends in months. I'm a senior in high school. I miss my prom, graduation, everything. I'm miserable. So you've got the young people and then you've got the older people. I remember speaking to a guy who was in a nursing home and he's like, yeah, I haven't left my room in a month and I haven't seen my family. My room is eight feet by 10 feet. I feel like I'm in prison. I would rather be dead. Oh my gosh. And I remember thinking like, gosh, if I was in your situation, I would feel the exact same way. And so you're all of a sudden supporting people at, you know, every end of the age spectrum and every type of situation. But that underlying theme there was that for a society that was lacking human connection already, we put people in these extremely physically isolated situations. And then we label something like social distancing on top of that. When people hear social distancing, they think I can't socialize, I can't be with other people. In retrospect, it should have been physical distancing. Mm -hmm. You know, we can still interact. We can still engage with each other, but let's just give each other some space. But instead, social distancing. And so you've got, you know, members of our communities that are just becoming more and more isolated. And then you put them at home with not a lot of things to do and they start to, you know, consume alcohol. They start to engage with substances. And we know that, you know, substance use is one of the biggest risk factors for somebody acting on thoughts of suicide. And so we've got all these things just being thrown at us at a time when then you've got, you know, the medical community and the mental health community just becoming overwhelmed with, um, you know, trying to, trying to stay upright, trying to, to support the need. You know, it's a supply-demand situation, and, and the demand was higher than the supply, and you've got healthcare workers and mental health workers that are becoming burnt out so rapidly and contemplating changing careers and the problem's getting worse. Mm. Gosh, it just 
like, so I work in the alcohol industry. So when you talked about, you know, alcohol relating to a lot of these issues, it's just interesting because from our point of view, it was like, wow, we are having the most sales we've ever had. This is great. But just, you know, on the other side, like the detrimental issues it's having on society and kind of like what you talked about, big businesses, big money. Somebody was struggling and somebody was making huge Huge money. And then they were allowing, I think it's a good thing that they were allowing um, restaurants, local restaurants to sell to go alcohol, which I think benefits a small business. But then who does it hurt on the other side? We all out now, we can socialize and fly and do all of these things. But for you, as a mental health professional, I wonder, because, you know, now people say, well, COVID is over, which technically is not, you know, we're still getting shots, boosters and all of that. But as far as like, from the mental health perspective, how long do you think that will affect us? I remember having the thought when we were in the thick of things, this is going to really mess us up. And what I meant by that was as a society, there's going to be a huge, you know, we talked about the ripple effect that can go several different ways. This is going to have a huge ripple effect because that was a very traumatic time for so many people, myself included. And if you think about the loss of loved ones, the loss of family members, not being able to attend funerals, canceled weddings, missed graduations, periods of sustained isolation, periods of increased substance use, periods of increased domestic violence, economic upheaval. You know, we talk about the restaurants and the small businesses. How many businesses did we lose? How many lives did we impact within those families that that ran those businesses? And yes, there were people that, you know, profited off this situation, but I think on the whole, it was a, a real net negative, and that's going to permeate into the future for years to come in ways that I don't think we quite understand as a society, but certainly as a mental health professional, you do see the impacts of that time period that I think are still ongoing, because if you think of it in terms of you know, loneliness, you go through a period of time where you're not interacting with humans and you forget how to interact with humans. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I guess we're back open again. We can fly and all that. But, you know, there's a a large cohort of our community that is hesitant or fearful or anxious about getting back out there and interacting with people. Yeah. The anxiety, I think, is, is, is going up, right? Because even... I think before COVID, right, we were so already addicted to our technology. And, you know, sometimes like I walk on the street and I see people and, and it doesn't matter. People that have, oh, it's young people. It's everybody. It's everybody. You see people just, you know, you walk and you're just, you know, walking, kind of looking. And like how many people are just on their devices, right? Watching probably meaningless stuff instead of just, they're interacting with their device instead of interacting with human beings, right? I feel like interacting with your device though kind of feels feels that void of being lonely. I don't know if maybe you know more about this, but we feel so lonely and so our device kind of fulfills that, but in a not real way. Well, I, I think of, you know, personally, what is my phone for me? And there were definitely times where I would 
go on social media because I was looking for attention. I was trying to fill a need. Um, and so, I, you know, for me, my phone was like this source of, it was a dopamine hit. It was just the source of positive endorphins that I would seek out and would desire. And I can see how that could become a replacement for perhaps how I filled that previously with like seeing my friends and going out and doing things. And so I can, you know, for a lot of people, their phone might become just that source of engagement. But to go back to kind of how we forget how to interact, and I'm definitely at the top of this list, you know, I, I went through a breakup during COVID and then got back out on the dating circuit mid-COVID and post-COVID. And I can definitely speak to personal experience. It's It was challenging for me to kind of go out and engage with with strangers. Yeah. And um, I'm happily in a relationship now and, and grateful for that. But I remember a period of time there where I was like, is this a me issue? Like, is it a society issue? And it was just so confusing and, and bizarre. It's definitely a me issue. But um, <laughs> yeah. And what what would be like your, you know, advice to somebody I guess, you know, even just speaking on what you said, you know, like dating, right? Like going, people were in the lockdown and maybe now just getting out there. What would be your advice or how to like get back to just interacting with other human beings? It's a, a great question. And, and I'm not the best uh, model for this. Um, you know, I, I love to go hiking. And so I would just go hiking by myself. And, and I like doing that. There's definitely value in that. But I started to think about my 24 hours in a day, say I'm sleeping eight of them. And, you know, I do a lot of my work pretty independently. And, and yes, I get engagement because I'm, you know, engaging with other humans, whether it's on the phone or with my coworkers through Zoom or whatever. And but then I go hiking by myself. It's like I never physically was with another person in the entire day. And going to the supermarket, going back to Whole Foods to spend my entire paycheck, it's like that was my physical interaction with society. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think about, hmm, well, that's probably not good. You know, I might need to kind of push myself and try to just place myself in social situations. And so I started you know, actively trying to do that. And it had such a positive impact on me. And I know it's hard because I'm an introvert and I value my alone time and just, you know, sticking my head between the couch cushions and just relaxing and exhaling. And, but I had to cognitively, you know, make that step so that I could have that interaction. And it was really positive. And so, you know, even if it's just going to a park and kind of sitting amongst other people and, and seeing them and perhaps seeing them smile. You know, you mentioned that. I love that. Mm -hmm. You know, eye contact, seeing a smile. Like these are really basic things, but they do so much for our biology. They do. In ways that we don't fully grasp. They do. I love that. I feel like <clears throat> like our generation in particular, I don't know about the other ones, but because I graduated right when COVID hit. So I didn't have a graduation. So I'm noticing a lot of my friends um, with all the work being remote now, I think it's really great for, you know, people that have already been in the works environment. They've already, you know, they have families. So great. Now they can work from home. It's really great. But for, um, me and my friends in particular, we're always looking, we're like, we want an in-person job. 
because we just don't have social skills anymore. And so a lot of my friends feel lonely, but I feel like we lack the skills now to go and see people. And when you're 20, you're so caught up in how you see yourself and how the world sees you. So it's almost like nerve wracking to put yourself out there, but you know, you need to put yourself out there. So I just love the advice of just going to a park because you don't have to, you know, get all dolled up and really present yourself in the best way possible, but it's just, you know, baby steps. So yeah, being human again. You have to put yourself out of your comfort zone and just, you know, pushing yourself out because I think there is so much more on the, you know, on the other side, once we put ourselves out there. I do have a question for you um, that I would like your opinion on. I'm originally from Ukraine, okay? So there's a lot of stigma being around mental health. When I was growing up, like it wasn't really like, let's sit down and talk about our feelings, not just in my family, but I felt like my family was a little bit better with that, but just, you know, None, nobody went to therapy. I mean, okay, if you said, first of all, you wouldn't say it if somebody did, but it was like such a secret. And if you, somebody did something, it was like, oh, they're crazy. They are mentally unstable. They, you know, it was all these things put on them. So it took me a long time to open up to therapy, right? That therapy is okay. Because I used to think that I'm, I don't need a therapist. I'm not like, insane you know by insane and you know you're just going crazy so you know I started looking for for therapists and something happening in my life to where I needed that um, and now I love it you know I love doing that but I want to because now my family my parents live with me my brother his wife live with me and when shout I shout out to Irina for opening her home I know I have like a zillion people in my house but I when I talk about mental health, like I get so frustrated with them because it's like, well, why do I need to go talk to somebody else? Well, why do I need to basically tell my, tell my secrets to this random person? I don't know. So what is your advice would be for me and for anybody that tries to get somebody to open up to therapy and that mental health is just like physical health. If we don't take care of it, it's going to go down to shit. How what is your advice? How to destigmatize that and get people to open up to that? I would challenge people to think about how do they feel in the context of, you know, something's going wrong or something's really bothering you. And like, how does that make you feel? It probably makes you feel tense, wound up, frustrated, anxious, fearful. And just think about that. And then perhaps reflect on a time where you were able to talk to someone, whether it was a friend, a coworker, anybody. You were able to just tell them what was going on. How did that make you feel? Did you feel better afterwards? Did you feel worse? And my hope, and this has certainly been my personal experience, but when I'm able to be honest with people about how I'm really doing, it is so liberating. Because all of a sudden, I don't have to fake it anymore. I don't have to put an act on. I don't have to pretend like things are okay. From the time we're born to the time we die, it's just going to be a series of things going wrong. <laughs> and if, and if, we have a, if, if we don't have a mechanism as individuals and as community members of courageously engaging with all those moments when things go wrong... You're going to become a balloon with air in it 
And if you keep putting air in the balloon, eventually it's going to burst. And so what we're trying to do with these conversations, whether it's on the crisis line or just in our communities, is we're trying to let just a little bit of air out of that balloon, alleviate some of the pressure on that system. And that's what I'm trying to do with these conversations, is encourage people to forthrightly and courageously have these conversations. It happens on the crisis line. I do it in my personal life. You know, I I always tell people what's going on because I feel so much better afterwards because then they have an understanding of what my world is like and they can interact with me in a more supportive and caring way. And if we just know what's going on with each other, we can be better friends. We can be better family members. We can be better coworkers. I love that. I feel like... In our society is just don't don't tell anyone how you're doing. Bottle it up. Nobody needs to know your business. So, and I just wanted to add because you said when we talk to people, we I think we become better partners, better friends. And I um I had a I I have a friend that I've known her for twelve years, right? And I feel like we're very honest with each other and we talk. But we had such a deep and profound and meaningful conversation. Um, I think it was on Friday that I was just so thankful that, you know, and I even told her like, you know, we've been friends for more than 12 years, you know, but relationship constantly grow when you open up and say, this is how I feel. This is what I need. And this is what I don't need right now. So uh, not going to say the name of my friend, but um, it was just, it is, it's better to talk about, to say how you feel so you can make better relationships. I was going to ask, so this is changing topics a little bit, but I feel there's mental health. I don't know if it like is worse in certain environments than others, which I think it is. But um, in our last episode, we talked about how um, people, when they become wealthy, they just kind of go crazy and they want more and more and more. And the wealthier you are, the more isolated you become. I know, like, you know, bigger houses, bigger homes, and you start to isolate yourself. And I was wondering, I know there's a lot of mental health issues in lower income communities, but is there also just as many issues in the wealthy communities? So I think mental health challenges transcends the socioeconomic spectrum, as you alluded to. You know, we see high profile celebrities taking their own life. You know, this Mm -hmm. comes up in the news every couple of months. And you think, you know, how could so-and-so take their life? They have such an amazing job and endless financial resources. And, you know, it makes you think, you know, we're all trying to navigate life. And life will present challenges from different angles at different times. And so one thing I have really been thinking about is, What do I really value? What do I really need? And for me, it's I need meaning. I need purpose. I need hope. I need my basic needs met. I need to feel connected. And I need my physical and mental health. I've kind of written those things down. And I try to fill some of those buckets with everything that I do. And that's what I need. And I don't make a ton of money, but I make enough, you know, I'm able to go hiking and my Toyota Camry has enough gas in it. I can eat well. I can go to Whole Foods. I mean, my life is incredible if you think of the grand scheme of Mm -hmm. human history. And so for those that perhaps have quote unquote everything, you might need to look a little deeper. You know, 
yes, they have endless amounts of money and an incredible house, but what's their feeling of purpose like? Do they feel like they're contributing to the world in a positive way? How connected are they? Are their interactions kind of somewhat hollow because people interact with them in a way that isn't so meaningful because they have tons of money? There's just so much more to the story, and that's that's where mental health is so important for everybody because I think we all have our own personal journey and our own personal challenges that need to be addressed. And certainly, yes, I, I do want to mention, you know, that not having your basic needs met and having severe economic challenges will be so detrimental to your mental health. Because if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, where you're going to sleep tonight, that is a level of stress that I have no way of comprehending, but just will impact populations at, at such a in such a forceful way. I think it's so incredible what you're doing because I think therapy is also really important. And I know you said you're not a therapist, but therapy can kind of have a little bit of a boundary to get to. You have to find the right therapist. There's a lot of money, monetary, you know, value involved. But this crisis hotline number, anybody can call it at any time for anything. And I think that's so important in our society to have. It is. And I just wanted to mention that we will put the, you know, the link to the to the website where you can find where you can find the number. And also, Eric, people can donate. This is nonprofit organization. So if people choose to, they can donate as well. Right. So, yeah, if you need help or if you know somebody who is struggling and they just need to talk to somebody, you can you can go on the on the website that we will put in a in a notes um, in is, a notes descriptions. And the new hotline number is it? Nine So it's okay. 988. So as of July 2022, there is a new national three-digit mental health hotline. It is the 10-digit national suicide prevention lifeline, but it's now just become 988, with the idea being that that number will be a lot easier to remember for somebody that is in a, a heated moment or in crisis. So that number is live. And so we answer that on behalf of Colorado. So this is a, a big national project that's a couple years in, and we're very honored and privileged to be able to, to answer that on behalf of Colorado. I love that. That's amazing. Cause you know, when you're having a physical illness, you call 911, mental illness, 988. A lot of people are really fearful to talk about suicide, and I have a lot of evidence of that, of which I can share. Why are people so, so scared to talk about to talk about that? I think there's a misconception that if you think about it, you're broken, or there's something wrong with you. And from what I've learned is that a lot of people have thoughts of suicide. So when things start to go wrong and they start to weigh on you, oftentimes you'll think about, you know, how can I problem solve my way out of this or whatever. And, but as things mount and start to snowball, it's a very natural human mechanism to try to survive, to try to get out of that situation. And so when people start to feel trapped in their existence with things going to hell in a handbasket all around them, it's actually a pretty natural thought to say, you know, how can I escape from this? Well, if I ended my life, that's one way of escaping this hellish existence. And so logically, it's not 
that surprising that people think, huh, well, maybe if I end my life, I'll, I'll get out of this. And a lot of people have those thoughts. I don't have statistics, but there are so many people that you're going to engage in your life on a day-to-day basis that live with thoughts of suicide or have had thoughts of suicide. There is a much, much smaller fraction of those people that will actually then act on those thoughts of suicide. And so what we're trying to destigmatize is that you might have suicidal ideation, you might be thinking about your life ending. That doesn't mean you're broken, that actually means you're normal. I think for somebody to hear that, just to say that you're normal, you know, that nothing is wrong with you, that it's normal. I was wondering if you have a friend or somebody that has, maybe they lost somebody to suicide. How can you comfort them? This is a really challenging component of caring for someone with suicide is the, the people around them the friends, the family, the community, because that friend or that family member, their experience is is equally as valid. And losing someone you care about is such a hurtful experience and a painful experience. And so you get these weird dynamics where there can be resentment and it's just a very open wound And so we try to be very respectful of every single person's experience. And one of my favorite things to think about is that two things can be true at the exact same time. It can be incredibly tragic and painful that we lost someone to suicide. And it also can be incredibly um, painful and tragic to have a loved one that was impacted by that in, in, in kind of an uncomfortable way. Those things are all true. And, and that's where, you know, losing someone does have an impact on the people around them, on the community. But when we're supporting someone, we put the person at the center of everything because I think that that's where you can make the most impact. Where do you think we are right now as a society when it comes to mental health. Do you think it's getting better? Because there's certainly a lot of conversation about it, right? Do you think we are getting better? Do you think people are more open to talk about their mental health, going to therapy, getting the resource they need? Or do we still kind of in that stiff place to where to where we still need to do a lot of work? I think we're at a time in our existence as human beings where it's at an all-time mental health is at an all like the issue is at an all-time high and there are i think many reasons for that i think the advancements in technology have made our lives so easy that you could go through your entire life without feeling connected without feeling meaning without feeling purpose because all your tasks are taken care of. And so then it's like, well, then what? And we've got these massive brains. And so our brains, if there's not something to do, there's not a problem to solve, there's not a goal to strive for, we're going to start thinking about other things. And it's very easy to turn the power of your brain on yourself. And, And I am a striking example of that. One thing I've been 
really trying to work on in the last couple of years is my self-talk. I started to notice that the voice in my head at me is very angry and very critical. And, you know, I'll drop a cup of water on the ground and I'll start cursing at myself in my head. And, you know, from the outside, you, you probably just look like a guy bending over, but I'm going at myself. Now, if you dropped a cup of water on the ground, would I yell and curse at you? No, I wouldn't. And so it's like, why am I treating myself different than what I would treat another person that I care about? And so I've been really working on it and it's hard, you know, because I'm trying to undo these patterns that are just years in the making. But I'm trying to care for myself as if I was caring for someone that I loved. I can relate to this. I can relate to this a lot. The self-talk sometimes can be horrible. And yeah, you wouldn't do this to somebody else. So why are you doing this to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we are our biggest critics and we have to be kind to ourselves just as much as we are kind to other people. Are you okay if I take it back a little bit to the suicide? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So with that being said of how to comfort people that have lost someone, is there any advice you can give to somebody that's had a friend come directly to them that said, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about suicide, I'm not feeling good? Because um, I know a lot of times people are like, they came to me, I didn't believe them. So what advice would you give to somebody that's had somebody directly come to them expressing their concerns? When somebody's having thoughts of suicide, there's a story there. And so when someone calls our line and shares that they're contemplating ending their life, one of my favorite things to ask is, gosh, I'd love to hear your story. You know, what have your last couple of months been like? What have your last year been like? Walk me through it. And the people or the things that people tell you are just, they're incredible. You know, they lost their job. They lost a loved one. They got divorced. They were homeless for a couple of weeks. They got caught up in this and that. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's a miracle you're still here. Given all those things that you've been through, to get you here to this moment. And so I think it can be incredibly impactful to walk people through how they got there to that moment where they're contemplating suicide. Because for a lot of people, as I mentioned, when people think about suicide, they think nobody else thinks this way. It's a me problem. I'm broken. And so what we're trying to do is really normalize these feelings and almost make people realize that they're having a very normal reaction to a sequence of events that have transpired. And when they realize that, it, it can be very liberating. And then, of course, you try to break down the problems and, you know, try to support them in, in going at what is confronting them. That's amazing. It's like such a different way than I would think to handle it because a lot of times people are like, I'm so sorry. Let me know if you need it. Try to shut it down as quickly as possible, but to dive deeper and just say, hey, man, what's what's going on? Like, I'm here to listen. Just, you know, what's your story? I do believe that there's always a story behind anything, right? So to thank you for breaking this down to for us and for listeners and for anybody who, you know, if you have somebody come to you, how to deal with it. Because I think a lot of the times 
you know, when people tell you they are feeling it, it can become uncomfortable, right? And you trying to like, okay, how can I make myself comfortable? Not thinking about the other person, but actually, you know, be there with that person, sit in that, listen to them. I think it's, it's important. We just need that that human connection. Okay, I was going to ask about a specific topic, but we don't have to get into it if we don't want to. But psychosis, I feel like it's something that's very real to some people. And then everyone else around them, it's, um, you know, like you're crazy. So for example, I have like OCD and there's certain things where it's like, I don't do this, somebody's going to die. And I think, you know, if I tell people that they're like, you're crazy. And then I'm like, you're also part of the issue. And I think there's such a like, stigma around it and I heard this thing the other day I was listening to another podcast and it was about um dealing with somebody with psychosis what they're experiencing is very real and to try to um you know just listen and understand so I'm so sorry that alien is coming for you that must be really scary instead of being like you know maybe you're crazy let's let's take a step back so I don't know if you get any calls from people that are experiencing something very real and scary like that. And if, you know, some of our listeners have a family member or friend going through that, what's the best way to approach that situation? I love what you said about, you know, never invalidate somebody's experience. And I remember a a call I took on the crisis line of somebody that was standing on a balcony contemplating jumping. They were in downtown Denver. And so, you know, I started engaging with this person and found out that they had consumed a lot of alcohol and hadn't been eating or or drinking water and tending to their very basic needs and hadn't taken any medication. And they were in a very depleted state and they had had enough and and they were ready to jump. And I'm, I'm grateful they found our number. And next thing you know, I'm speaking with them. And Over the course of the interaction, the person said, there's a massive owl standing on this balcony with me. And I thought, huh, downtown Denver, probably not a traditional environment for an owl, but that's not for me to to think about. How big is the owl? I asked. Oh, it's seven feet tall. I said, wow, you know, that's a big owl. And so I then said, what would the owl think if you jumped? And the person was like, oh, no, I don't want to make the owl mad. Like, they're, they're looking at me right now. And so this seven-foot-tall owl was the what we call a buffer between that person ending their life. And the call had a, a positive outcome. They came off the balcony and ended up getting some food. And, you know, as, as I understand it, we're, we're okay at the end of the call. But this person's experience was different than mine. You know, my logical mind was saying, you know, there isn't a seven foot owl, but it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's about what's this person's experience like. And it's that whole exercise of being able to put yourself in that person's shoes, whether it's on the crisis line or just in our communities. If we did that better, we'd have such a more peaceful existence as a society. Oh, I love what you said about taking yourself out of the situation because a lot of the times you tell somebody something and they're like, well, I wouldn't do. And I, and it's like, well, I'm not talking about you, like talking about me. And I had experienced this personally. So it's like when you said, 
he said there's an owl. Well, there's not an owl, but it's not about me, right? Maybe there's an owl for him. So yes, take yourself out of the situation. It's not about you. I wonder if that could, you know, solve a lot of our like divide as a country too. Like, you know, with politics and everything, it's like, you know, where you're coming from, that's actually what you believe. And I need to understand that. So maybe we just solved our issues. We get a lot of political calls. And I think you'll remember the year after 2021 was a very polarizing time politically. And we would get calls from people that were on every single side of the political spectrum, on every single side of every single issue. And there was a lot of anger. But what you have to remember is that anger is a, an emotion that's usually layered on top of something else. And so I had many a conversation with people that perhaps I didn't personally agree with politically, but it was my responsibility to provide them space and to consciously try to put myself in their shoes for that moment. And I remember speaking with someone who was a really rural part of Colorado and they were very pro-gun and perhaps it wasn't how I felt, but I wanted to understand, like, what does it feel like? And by the end of our, like, 30-minute conversation, I felt so connected to this person. And I wasn't convinced that I would feel differently if I was in their shoes. And so it totally opened my eyes towards, like, huh, we are far more similar than we are different. We just need to provide each other platforms to share what it is we're experiencing and what our life is like. And when you do that, you realize that, huh, like, we're not as far apart as we think. I agree. Oh, that's incredible. I agree. Let's get to some questions. What are some mental health myths slash general ideas that are being exacerbated yeah. on social media? By talking about suicide, we're going to increase the number of suicides suicides that's been debunked by talking about it we are preventing suicide and i firmly believe that and it's such a hard thing to measure because anytime somebody doesn't take their life you don't hear about it but we see all these statistics and you see people parading around these numbers of things are getting worse, you know, deaths of despair at an all-time high and the world is ending. But what those people don't know is how many people out there that are suffering that get better and go on with their lives and have children and get jobs and change the world. I think it's always, we always need like this boogeyman, right? And always like when you open anything, any news, anything, it's always this scary, look what's happening. But you're right, we need more those positive statistics, things that that gotten better, people that gotten better versus all the bad, because that also does something to a mental health. Okay, the next question. What... What do you think of the sudden explosion of ADHD self-diagnosis? So I'm, I'm not a licensed medical professional, so anything I say, please take in context. I'm just thinking about myself, because I even had the thought the other day, 
I was doing my dishes and then I like halfway through doing my dishes, went and changed my laundry, didn't put it in the dryer, walked over and like watered my plant. And I tried to do like five different tasks without completing one of them. And I was like, what is going on with me? Like, why am I so inefficient at focusing? And I think that because I've trained being inefficient at focusing, I'm bopping around my phone, going from this app to that app, looking at this, giving it a like, jumping over here, swiping over here. It's like, this is what I've been doing day to day. I don't practice finishing things and seeing them to completion. So I can just speak from my own experience that I am a product of my behavior. And that's not to say that there aren't, you know, biological um, differences that contribute to things differently. That's absolutely true. But um, I know I've become, I've made myself more distractible. My friend asked me the other day, because I told I told her that we were interviewing this and she, I wrote it down because I forgot. Um, but she was wondering, do animals actually provide any emotional support that you've noticed on your hotlines? Oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many... the. The only thing between somebody and ending their life is their pet. It's who's going to feed my cat? Who's going to take my dog for a walk? Who's going to water my plant? I heard that one once. Wow. So I think pets, plants, whatever it is that gives you some sense of connection, some sense of responsibility, some sense of meaning... Those things are so valuable. And, and I, I've been on, I, I got turned on to the plant thing. I used to live in a basement, but now I live in a, an apartment with a lot of light and I've gotten into plants and there are, they are my friends and I water them and I look at them and they look at me and they give oxygen to my environment and I'm grateful for them. And I just got this little relationship with my plants. Do you talk to them? I haven't yet, but I usually talk to myself. So they watch me talk to myself. Got it. I saw this thing where specific music, um, depending on like your personality, your plants like like listening to it. Well, I've been uh, really cool? into autumn themes. So Noah Kahan and there's all this beautiful music coming out that I'm blasting on my Bose sound system. Yeah, they love that. There's like the vibration. It like supposedly does something. I'm a big plant lady too. <laughs> the reason I ask because my mom, she loves plants. I'm not so much, but she lives with me now. So she planted three plants and she waters them and she talks to them at her house. It's like a botanical garden. She has this tall plants and little one and the one that only bloom in, you know, different seasons. So she talks to them. So I was just wondering if anybody else does I love it. I think it's like just having something that gives you, you know, that purpose and joy. But if you're not feeling good, just take a step back and find something that just brings you happiness in reality form. We're all looking for that. We're all looking for happiness and joy and, and be connected, right? In some of my darkest personal moments, what's been the most alleviating thing is just focusing on something else on somebody else. I, I went through a period of time in my 20s where I, I wasn't doing well. and I just started volunteering. And I started just 
pouring myself into something else, into somebody else. And I started to then feel a little bit better about myself because I was, you know, I volunteered. I, I made a difference. I did something good. And and then I started to feel a little bit better. And then I felt more energized and I started to do other things. And it was that one little decision to instead of just wallowing in what I'm going through, consciously put myself in a situation where I have to focus on someone else or something else. And that changed my life. And I love telling people that because I know there's a lot of people out there that are not doing well today. And I would really encourage you to just go, even if it's for one night, just go help serve food at a, a shelter or help clean up a, a garden or a anything. Just do something that will move the needle just slightly in the more positive direction. And then let me know. Well, don't let me know, but ask yourself, how do you feel after you did that? You're going to feel a little bit better because you did something really good. And that might be the little piece of momentum you need to then make the next right decision. I think it's a perfect moment to, to end. I do. And if I could leave you with just one last little tidbit. It's the question you ask someone. Are you okay? Three words. And just give it space to breathe. Because I think what you'll find is that a lot of people aren't okay. And that's okay. Because we are all in this together. And the sooner we realize that and we provide each other space to be vulnerable, to be truthful, we become so much more connected. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.